Hey, um, we are kicking off this message series called Let's Talk, and that's really what these chairs represent, and it would be impossible for me to have a conversation with each person one-on-one on the depth that we're going to go into over the next four or five weeks. And yet, I'd like for you to try to get into the mentality that, that, that that's exactly what we're doing, that we're having a conversation about some very important things, that it's kind of one-on-one. And, and I know that when, when I'm sitting down with a close friend, with somebody I trust, somebody that we have history, that I know they have my best interest at heart, then I don't come with all the, uh, the barriers emotionally. I don't come with my guard up. I come you know, ready to engage, ready to talk, to meet kind of face-to-face as friends and just talk about life. Now, we're going to talk about some very important things over the next few weeks. I, I think that for me, this message series, um, well, I know on a personal level, it's, it's huge. Because the things we're going to deal with in this message series as we look at who we are in Christ— who God has declared his sons and daughters to be, uh, for me, they're the most liberating, joy-inspiring, enabling, empowering things contained in all the scripture. Now, here's the basic idea, that through Jesus Christ, we get to have eternal life, that the the gap of sin between us and God has been closed, that we are washed clean, that those things that used to identify us no longer do, so we get heaven and a relationship with God, and that's amazing. But we're going to drill down over this message series on the second half of that beautiful thing that is implied and given to us in the relationship. Yes, we get heaven, and that's good enough if that's all we got. But our God loves us so much that that's not all he's given us. He's given us an amazing life here and now, walking with him, living life with him, through him, empowered by him, informed by him. And so that we get all of heaven and a pretty amazing life here too. And yet as a pastor, I know that for a lot of us that have committed our lives to Jesus, we trust him with our soul. We know where our eternal destiny is. When we look at the life we live right here, it's not all that God wants for us. There's a lot of reasons for that. One of the primary reasons that we as individuals who are brothers and sisters, who have committed our lives to Jesus, who have saved, who have made him the Lord of our lives, whatever language you enjoy using, that are following, one of the primary reasons that we don't live the life that he wants for us here and now, I believe, is that we don't understand, we haven't grasped, we haven't contemplated what he says about us. Now, my family likes to travel. If you've been around here, you know that. Um... We like to take these wild trips, and not only does my family like to travel, my wife and I like to travel, and one time, a few years ago, we we got to go down to Orlando to do some training around some church stuff, just the two of us. It was a really nice break, uh, getaway. We have four kids. We're always looking for a way to get away, and uh, our best friends in the room um, are are the ones who watch our kids for us regularly. Thank you for that. We we love a break from our kids. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. We, We have four kids. Did I mention that? Now, we... And so we, anyway, we got away, but by the end of the week, have you noticed this, parents? By the end of the week, we're missing our kids. Jill and I have gone out on dates, and by the end of the date, we're talking about our kids. Well, by the end of the week, we're talking about our kids. And so right down the road from where we were was the largest Lego store in the country. My kids love Legos. I mean, they are Lego fanatics, and, and we have piles and piles of Legos. And I've played Legos enough with my kids to know which pieces we fight over. Now, parents, if you have multiple kids, you know what I'm talking about. If not, let me school the rest of you, all right? Um, Legos are amazing toys because they, you can do pretty much whatever you want to do with them. And yet, there are normal pieces that you have in abundance. That, Like when you buy a box, we call them the cheap pieces. And then there are like the really nice pieces that you can do special things with. 
and they have funky colors or shapes or they do particular things. Some of them have mechanical items um, built into them or, or whatever. And those are rare. And if you buy like a big box of Legos, you'd only get a few of those. So Jill and I went to the largest, largest Lego store in the country, and on a wall, they had an entire wall, not of the cheap pieces, but of all the specialty pieces you could buy. And you could buy an empty bucket, and then you could cram as many as you could fit in, and the price was the same if you put two pieces in or you filled it to the brim. The only rule was that the lid had to fit squarely on it. And man, I, I went nuts. I got a bucket, filled it up with all the right pieces, a lot of roof pieces, because you never have enough roof pieces, a bunch of tires and wheels and cool tracks and all kinds of, uh, and then I got another bucket and I filled it up and brought it home to the kids. And, and it was like Christmas morning when we opened that up. We pulled out all of our other Legos, which was full of cheap pieces, and we added these really nice pieces in there. And for, the, for several hours, and honestly, for days and days now since that event years ago, We've enjoyed the benefit of having a full and diverse bucket full of Lego pieces, both of the, the lower quality or the, the, the common pieces and then the higher quality uncommon pieces. Now, I'm talking to you about Legos, but my point, of course, isn't Legos. The Christian life is interesting because it's built partially on knowledge, and yet it's not the knowledge alone that makes the Christian life special. There's a certain knowledge that we teach the children. They might be learning this song right now. It's, Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so. Basic, basic knowledge. It's a song we teach them in song form so they can remember it. Um, we, we sing songs on our stage that, has, uh, that have, have theological truth in them that we're communicating and we're ingesting certain bits of information that we need. And with those bits of information, we can begin to construct a reality and understanding, well, primarily first and foremost for believers, about God. And what does the Bible say about God and how do we understand God? But not just about God, about ourselves. When we read the Bible, we read that book and it doesn't just tell stories of people a long time ago. And it doesn't just reveal the heart of God, although it does both of those things beautifully well. It also reveals our heart. So when we read those stories in the Bible, we're getting information, building blocks, if you will, about us. And that's why, as a church, we regularly encourage you to read your Bible, to come to church, to get in a small group. Because our understanding is, is that if we can get you certain blocks of information, truth, that you can grab hold of and then put into your bucket, then when you need them, when you need to construct something, when you need to understand something, you're going to have a variety of truths that you can bank on and build something solid. One of the biggest tragedies of being a pastor is watching people who have been in the church and around Christianity for 20 years. And you meet them and you hear that they've been in church for that long and in your mind, you automatically, at least I do, I go to this thing, I'm thinking, well, I've got a mature believer on my hands. They've been around the thing for 20 years. They must get it. They have certain buzzwords that they understand. They can use theological terms with a certain amount of skill. I can't tell you how many times I've met people who've been around the Christian thing, been around the church thing for 20 and 30 and 40 years, but they're not 20 and 30 and 40 years old as a Christian. They're like one year old. 20 times. 
They've been in the church, but rather than having this cumulative adding to their bucket and building something beautiful with their life, it's almost like they, don't, they, they miss the, the, the most basic rudimentary building blocks so that while they've spent a lot of time in the environment, somehow the information hasn't come together in a way that has built a life that God promises and hopes for us. It's, it's heartbreaking. And so God comes to us with great clarity. And he says to us that it's not just about time, and it's not just about a few bits of information. But for all of us, it's in part about putting as much about the God information into our buckets as possible, and then trusting him to reveal to us which pieces to pull out at which time to build on the life that he's building through us. I think I've stretched that Lego metaphor as far as I can take it, but I think you probably are getting my point. I don't want to teach you new stuff. Although for some of us it'll be new. That's not my goal. And I don't want to walk out of here being more learned. (laughs) I want us to be more intelligent alone. I want us to grab hold of some basic truths in the Bible and grab hold of them in a way that we put them in our bucket for future use put them in our bucket for very immediate use, but that we understand them, and then our hearts are open, our minds are receptive to allow God to do whatever he wants to do. Who we are in Christ is a big deal. In terms of your walk with Christ, in terms of your marriage, how you raise your kids, how you understand your money, how you see your purpose in life, there's no better and more clear and more important beginning point than who Jesus is declares you to be. And yet people in the Bible have struggled with who they are in God all the way from Genesis through the book of Revelation. People have struggled. The stories of the Bible contain the story of struggle of people who've wrestled to come to terms with who they believe they are, who their experience says they are, what other people have said about them, and comparing that to what God declares about them. Sometimes when you read those stories, it's this external struggle about a person who has a profound vision for themselves or profound vision of what God's going to do through their lives, and yet the circumstances of their life and the people they're surrounded with don't seem to get it. Other times, it's a very internal struggle where they have a sense of what they want to be, and there's a clear calling from God to step out and do something, to be something, to be the husband, to be the wife, to be the leader, to be the soldier, to be the, the sacrifice, whatever. And then internally, though, they just struggle with believing, and it robs them of boldness, robs them of joy. And in the face of all that, there's our God who wanted so much to let us know what he thinks about us that he left us this profound book called the Bible. Not to sit on our shelves and not simply to learn to know facts but so that the truth in there and the reflection of him and the reflection of us can become the building blocks for the life he wants us. I'm trying to help you see how important this thing called the Bible is, not as something we enshrine on a a shelf or tell people they should read, but something that as individuals we take for ourselves and say, God, I want to know all you tell me about me. And God, I want to know all you chose to tell me about you. And God, I want to know all you tell me about the world. 
I mean, if you took time to tell me, I want to know it. Because I think if you had a more clear understanding of what Jesus says about you, it literally would change your life. When I look at the Christians who are most full of joy, who have the deepest faith, not the ones who've been around the longest, not simply the ones who know a few words, not the ones who know the words to the songs that were sung a generation ago, but the ones who have the deepest joy and the most stable, profound faith, it's the ones who have regularly chosen, they've carved out time to fill their buckets with the truth that God left us. It's not a drudgery for them, but it took discipline. It's not something often that came natural, but it's something they've gotten comfortable with. It's something that when they first started seemed like this Herculean task, this massive amount of information, and would they ever make sense of it? And yet, little by little, they begin to chip away so that they got a realistic grasp of this thing called God's Word, His truth, the revelation of Himself. And that grasp wasn't a knowledge that they reveled in it. It didn't add to their ego. It built their lives. That's why around here, the goal has always been on Sunday morning. We we say it to our tech team, to our musicians. It's all about the message. The message of God, not not Ben's message. That, That would be ego and hubris. It's all about the message of God that we're getting forth because information from God is a big deal. So what we're going to do today is first of all talk a little bit about what fractures our identity, who Jesus really says we are. What fractures our identity? And I think sometimes one of the first things that comes to my mind when I think about what stands in the way of that clear picture of who Jesus says we are is stuff that happens to us throughout our lives. And I'm not a psychologist, and we're not doing the Stuart Smalley thing, but let's just take a moment and contemplate some of the forces that stand against what Jesus says about you before we even begin to dig down into what he says. I think a lot of us have faced some incomplete criticism in our lives. Here's what I mean by incomplete criticism. People have given you fair criticism, appropriate criticism, but it wasn't the total story of your life. Maybe you were into sports. And maybe you struggled consistently with maybe, you know, one of the fundamentals, dribbling the basketball. This is going to be bad because anytime I get into sports analogies, I, I never make sense. I've never, never enjoyed sports. So, but I'm, I'm going to run, run with me. Be, be gracious, all right? And maybe you didn't get the deal. And so every time you went to practice, you're getting hammered on whether or not you can dribble well. And dribbling is very important to the game. You know how many, how many budding athletes have bailed out of a sport because in the practice there was a harsh reality about how they were performing. And rather than hearing that as a, you can get better at this and we're going to help you grow and this is one slice of the game and while you're struggling here, maybe you're doing okay. That one constant criticism becomes the lens through which they view everything. And so while the criticism is fair, it's incomplete. Some of us in life academically, relationally, spiritually, financially, we look at ourselves or other people have looked at us and have spoken over us a criticism. And often the criticism had a certain amount of validity to it, but it wasn't the whole picture of who we are. And yet it gets internalized. And when we think about ourselves, we think about ourselves as the one who can't keep the house perfect, and yet our friend can. The one who can't make the grades, and yet they can. The one who doesn't make the money, and yet they can. 
sometimes this incomplete criticism of us that we have of ourselves, that we've internalized, keeps us from hearing freely the voice of God. On the other side of that, sometimes there's one-sided compliments. This is what happens when you see a, I used to teach high school, a lot of you know that, but when you see a, a, a very talented high school student, and maybe they're starting to show um, excessive skill on the, on, the, on the basketball court or on the football field, or maybe they are really good instrumentally or vocally, and somebody is always walking up to them in those early stages and saying, you're great, you're amazing. Their friends say to them, you're the best. And it's a fair compliment, it's a legitimate compliment, but it's kind of one-sided because the truth is, they're not the best. <laughs> You've seen that, right? Yeah, they're not the best. And yet sometimes it gets internalized. And rather than that compelling a person to practice more and do better and discipline themselves to explore that thing, they revel in the fact that they've already arrived. They've already got the accolades of people. And so sometimes one-sided compliments can be the barrier from causing a people to really discover who they really are and how they're really doing. And there's a more insidious one that we'll talk about for just a moment. I kind of call it the blind comparison, the comparison trap. You look at yourself, you look at the people around you, and it's the most natural thing in the world. And in middle school, you can't stop it, parents. Your kids are just going to do this. They're going to first start getting their identity by looking at the kids around them and saying, I'm not that. They have that. We don't have that. She has this kind of hair. I have this kind of hair. They dress like this. I, I dress like this. And the first kind of comparative things we do in the adolescent years, sometimes this blind comparison where we don't really know their whole story, but we look at what we see about them and we think that somehow we have to measure up or fit. It's an insidious thing. The, uh, the social media of our lives, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. You get on Facebook, and let me just tell you as a pastor, I hope most of your lives are as good as you tell me it is on Facebook. I do. I hope, because if it is, man, we are, we are doing phenomenal. But you know, you know what that's like, right? Facebook is the highlights reel, right? Facebook is the, it's the highlights reel of our lives. It's the best stuff. And some of you, the way you're wired, it's the worst stuff. It, it's okay, we, we love you. But it's the best stuff of your life. And so you're hitting the high points and you're, and you're broadcasting. Please, I love to see the pictures of your kids. It's not a slam on social media, but sometimes, you know, as researchers are discovering that we compare ourselves to what we read on these social media outlets and we see the, 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 the Facebook posts and we think that somehow that we've got to measure up to that. And, and yet that's not even real life. We have this blind comparison. And there are a lot of forces that the enemy uses in our life to fill our heads with who we think we are. So God comes to us in stark contrast and says, I don't know what to think about yourself. I don't know what other people have said about you. I don't know fully what's been internalized. You may not fully understand it, but I'm going to give you a full impression of who you really are. I want to take you to one story in the Bible today, and over the next few weeks, we're going to drill down on some major passages. But today, we're going to start with one simple story about a guy whose life was transformed as he wrestled with who he was and who God was declaring him to be. His name is Gideon, and his story is found in the book of Judges, chapter 6. The book of Judges is an interesting, describes as an interesting time in Israel's history, where... Um, where things were kind of crazy. There wasn't a clear leader. The, the promised land had been largely obtained, and yet the conflict wasn't fully over. It's like, you know, 70 to 80 percent, they were done with the mission God had given them. 
And so they move past the warrior status into people who are settling into the land. And now what do you do when you don't have conflict? What do you do when you have opportunity? They were struggling with that. And who's in charge? And what morality? And where are we really going as a people? And what's my role in that? And beyond all of that internal discussion, there was external pressure where because the military thing wasn't completed under Joshua, he had passed away without it being fully done. Because that wasn't complete, different bands of traveling marauders is really what it was, would come in and just make havoc on life every once in a while. And they'd come in and steal the gold, steal the women, steal the food. And then they'd go out and do their thing. And it was a very tough time. And so God rose, raised up certain leaders called judges to rule in military might, but also in kind of, kind of wisdom for the day and, and make decisions like judges today often would. And one of those guys was a guy by the name of Gideon. But when we first find him, he's not living as a judge. He's just a normal dude. Here's what the Bible says in Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah. And not Oprah. Ophrah. If it was Oprah, I'd avoid this passage. Uh, not kidding. If it was in the Bible, I'd do it, but I, I'm not a big fan. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah. If, that, if, you're, if you're offended by that, it's okay. It's all right. My, my email is greg at fourcornerschurch.com. Just mail that to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah, and there that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. The Midianites was the oppressing force from outside. The wine press was a hollow in the ground, and, and, and it was where the grapes would be trampled and the juice would run out and they would collect the, the thing. And here he was taking care of wheat. Now, wheat typically is threshed on a hill out in the open so that the wind could blow and you would throw all the wheat and all the chaff up together and the chaff is lighter than the wheat and the wind would blow the chaff away, the wheat would fall back. So you would just constantly be throwing the wheat up. And you do that out in the open, but because the force of the Midian uh, was so large and the threat of them so overbearing, Gideon was hiding in the wine press. He's not at all the picture of faith and power. And yet, if you know the story of Gideon, you know that later on in his life, God uses him in profound ways. We're getting insight to that change where he adds to the building blocks of his life, not just the circumstances around him, not just what he believes about himself and his God in the world, but where God is about to pour into him truth that's going to change everything. And he's going to have a receptivity like he's never had before. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now Gideon is the guy hiding in the wine press in the hollow of the ground, and on the hollow of the ground, and he's you know doing the wheat thing, trying to not to make up too much stir so the Midianites don't see him and come and take the thing away. And God looks at him and calls him a, a mighty warrior. But Sir Gideon replied, "If the Lord is with us." Why has all this happened to us? Why are we going through this fight with the Midianites? Why, why are we struggling as a country? Why, why am I struggling personally? Uh, the next verse. Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of Midian. I, I, I like these guys and ladies in the Bible because one of the things that happens early when they're about to be transformed is there's a brutal honesty that they embrace. Now, it may not always be fully accurate, but it's honest. To Gideon, it looked like he 
He didn't see God anywhere. And he's just honest about that. He's not pretending. He's not projecting. He just, this is what it seems like to me. But he's in a dialogue. And he's talking. I mean, he hasn't given up. <laughs> he's not just saying, just go away. I've got it. No, he's talking. And, and he's engaged a dialogue that's going to change him with a source of truth, in this case, an angel, that's going to make all the difference. The Bible says this, the Lord turned to him and said, now the Lord, the Lord's messenger, whether it was God incarnate, we don't know, it's not worth debating, but this was the voice of God is the impact of this. The Lord turned and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I want you to go in the strength you have. It's almost as if God's saying, look, we're going to worry about everybody else in a minute, but right now I'm talking to you. Can you and I have a conversation and will you let me point out a few things to you? Am I not sending you? What strength do you have? Go in that. It's an invitation to take an honest inventory about where you really are. What strength do you really have? I'm chatting with 20-somethings and they're trying to figure out their lives and maybe they got some relation or turmoil or financial turmoil or, or maybe a little spiritual confusion. One of the things we have to do early in the conversation is begin to establish what life's really like. Where are the real rough places? Because sometimes when you're having a rough run over here, it feels like it spreads over the entire life. You can't see anything good. It's that one-sided negative thing. So one, one of the things you have to do is help them see, all right, it's not all that bad. You have some strengths. There's some things going good. There's some, some okay things going. Can we start there? But the other part of that conversation has to quickly happen, the part that I'm trying to get us to do right now and for the remainder of this series. That's when God looks at Gideon and says, look, I'm going to deal with you. I don't know about everybody else. I don't know about her. don't know about your parents. don't know about your church, your pastor, your history. But you and I, we need to have a talk and you need to understand that when I declare it, it's the way it's going to be. Am I not sending you to do something? But God, what about her? Am I not sending you? One of the clearest ways to begin to grasp what God says about us is to not worry so much about the people around us and the environment around us and fixing everybody around us. You see this no more clearly than you see it in the church. Christians who are consumed with fixing everybody around them and fixing the church and fixing the worship and fixing that believer over there and fixing their kids. Sometimes that's an appropriate discussion. But for you to grow and for me to grow, there has to come regular periods of time when we hear God say to us, don't I want to deal with you too? I mean, in, in this dialogue, are you going to let me grab hold of your heart one of the most destructive things we can do with God's Word is to read it and learn it in order to engage somebody in a debate in order to try to fix them or change them. God's Word is powerful. Sometimes the right biblical idea spoken in a conversation or in an environment can really have positive impact on somebody else. It really can. But the most powerful work of God is the transformed life that happens when not you tell somebody else what God's word means for them. Sometimes that's appropriate. 
The most powerful work of God happens when you and I humble ourselves and say, God, would you let your truth penetrate my heart deeply? Would you let it, as the word of God says about his word, would you let it cut down to my very soul, to the most inward parts? Would you let it divide me apart? Would you let it lay bare for me what's really going on? When God's word does that, it transforms us. It changes everything. Have I not sent you? The next verse. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my family. There's that internal dialogue, that unfair comparison that, that, that he's made, that, that sense that somehow he doesn't see himself the way God's seen him. God's already declared him as a mighty word. God, how can I do, do, do you, as, as much as I, I want to get onto the guy and say, look, how can you be so blatant in your disagreement with God? He's already called you a mighty word. He's already told you to go in the strength you have. Here's Gideon having that honest conversation with God and, and engaging that truth in a way. And it's, of course, it's probably painful and probably produces a certain amount of fear in him, but he's still talking. He's still talking. And that discussion with God and dealing with the stuff that God's saying is having a transformative effect on him. I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered. And this word begins to change everything. Huh? I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And you'll strike down all the Midianites together. I'll be with you, God says. You know, the beginning point of understanding who you are in Christ is the refrain that Jesus kept saying over and over and over again when he was on the earth. I'll be with you. Come be with me. Let's do this together. In the last words Jesus spoke, the Great Commission, he says, I want you to do all this stuff. Go, go share my gospel with the world. Make disciples. Baptize people. And I'm going to be with you to the very last day. There won't be a single day that I won't be with you. When's the last time you contemplated what it means that you have never, as a child of God, been alone? You haven't been. You may have felt alone. You may feel like the pressure is all on you, that nobody else understands, that somehow you don't have what it takes to get past this particular hurdle, this challenge. I, I don't know how big those challenges were, but I know this, that one of the things God wanted Gideon to understand, one of the things he wants us to understand is we don't take a single step that God isn't right there with us. And as a brother or sister, as a child of God, as one dearly loved, you are not alone, no matter how you feel about the thing. God, I want to get you to understand that the two of them together, that was going to make all the difference. That that was the beginning point of the dialogue. Right? I got it. Circumstances are rough. I got it. Internally, you're wondering if you've got the goods. I got it. Your heritage, you don't come from a long line of successful. I got it. I got it. There's challenges all around. We say, and yet I'm with you, is what God says. I'm with you. And this changes everything in Gideon's life. It changes everything. It changes the questions he is going to ask. It changes the behaviors he engages in. It changes his sense of confidence as he does it. Oh, it doesn't happen in one fell swoop. 
Gideon's story as it unfolds. You can read it for yourself in the book of Judges. There's a lot of wondering in there. But he keeps the dialogue between him and God open. And sure enough, God raises this man up. Gideon, from the weakest tribe and the weakest family in the weakest tribe and the weakest member of the weakest family in the weakest tribe, rises up and becomes one of the greatest warriors in Israel's history. Not because he talked himself into it. Not because he looked at it objectively and said, I can do this thing. But because he grabbed hold of a basic truth. That God was with him. He put that truth in his bucket and began to build on it. And when the circumstances looked different, when the obstacles mounted, when the enemy's army was larger, he rested on the fact that him and God could do it. That's how truth, over time, begins to transform. It sounds self-serving when a pastor says, you have to come to church. Because here's the truth, you don't have to. Don't write that down, please. Don't let that sink in. You can go to heaven without going to church. You really can. A lot of folks will. But you come to church to add to the bucket, to get those basic building blocks of what God says about you and about him and the world he's put you in so that he can grow you, not to just get you through by the skin of your teeth and one day get heaven. I mean, I, I, that, of course that would be good enough. But that's not what his heart for you is. And so he wants you to engage. And if that's God's heart for you, to engage environments like this and small group and personal engaging of the scriptures for yourself on your own, if that's what God wants for you because the impact is so powerful in your life, what do you think the enemy would like to do in your life? I think the enemy would like to put every roadblock in your path to keep you from honestly looking square in the face at the truth of God. The truth spoken from a trusted friend who's speaking out of compassion and wisdom to you. I think he'd like to get in the middle of that and keep you from seeing and hearing that. The truth from his word that you open and look at and read and ingest. Maybe you don't understand it all, but little by little, bits of it gets more clear I think the enemy would love to get between you and your Bible. I think he'd love to get between you and your church, you and a close-knit group of friends in a small group or a becoming close group of friends in a small group that encourage, and on occasion the conversation is about the Lord and what he's doing. I think he'd love to get in the middle of that, and I think he has a whole host of tools at his disposal to keep you and me distracted from ever engaging the truth of God. I think he's been very successful in some believers' lives and unfortunately way too successful in mine on occasion. And yet there is great clarity, there is great power, there is great wisdom and strength that comes from adding to your bucket, even if you don't know how the pieces fully fit together, just the discipline of staying in the truth of God. That's why I think you need to come to church. That's why I think you need to join small groups on occasion that challenge you to read a book that stretches you, even if you don't agree with it all the way, because it stretches you to consider, what does God have to say about this? That's why I think you should think about church, you know, kind of corporately and how we do things, but you should never think about it so corporately and how we do things in a way that somehow you're on the outside looking in as the evaluator and not on the inside experiencing that environment of worship and preaching and change and next steps because that 
It's the way we add to the bucket and get the building blocks from which God builds a beautiful life, not just an existing life, but a beautiful, beautiful life. So, over the next few weeks, I want to drill down on some of those very tangible things that Jesus says and some of their implications for us. It's not really a, a message series for those out there. It's really for those of us in here to make sure that the army that God is using to reach out there is healthy and vibrant and alive. Alive, fully alive. Let's uh, take a few steps together um, as a congregation. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's do this. We're going to take a couple steps together and then I'm going to pray and ask God to get our hearts fully ready for this time of communion together. All right? So I've been talking all about the truth of God and one of the biggest truths he wants you to know about him is that he loves you and he'll take you right where you are. And if, if there's sin in your life, if there are mistakes in your life, if you're distant from God, God will cover all that over with his grace. It's called becoming a Christian or becoming a follower of Jesus or getting saved. One of the biblical words for it is being born again. And, and the Bible says you do that simply by looking up at God and saying, you're the Lord of the universe. I'd like to make you the Lord of my life. And I can't come to you all the way. So I ask you, God, to forgive my sin, and you come to me. And I just accept your grace there. If you'd like to do that, next step A on your Connect card, you can check the box. In a moment, I'm going to pray about it, and you can use my words or use your own. God, I'm a sinner, but I want you to forgive me, and I want you to lead my life. And if you'll put that card in the offering bucket with next step A checked on it, when the week comes and the, the office team gets together, they will send you some information about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and give you some of that truth that I'm talking about for you to think about and kind of add to your bucket. Or next step B, if you'd like to get baptized and go public with your faith, we'd love to celebrate that with you around here. We're doing that a little bit more frequently. And uh, we'd love to just celebrate with you what God's done in your life and, and, and the newness that is yours in Him. All right, how about next step C? Let's just get very practical. I think most of us could benefit from getting in God's word more. So there are two big tools. Next step C says this. I'm going to pick a reading plan, a Bible reading plan. And there are two places, BibleGateway.com or the YouVersion app. You can pick up your regular Bible too. But there are some nice reading plans there. And I'm going to add more bricks to my bucket. Right? I don't know how that helps, but I'm going to add more bricks. Maybe you've committed to this in the past. Maybe you did it a few days and stopped. I don't care about all that. What if today you heard God say, I want to deal with you. I want to add to your bucket. If you'll check the box, we'll send you an email with these two websites or the website in the app and on your smartphone, your iPad, on your website or in your good old you know, paper Bible. You can do whatever, but getting a disciplined plan to get the truth in there as much as you can to kind of combat the lies of this world. All right, next step D. I want to explore more deeply what it means to be deeply loved and valued by God. I'm going to make it a priority to be at the Let's Talk message series for the next three weeks. Maybe you can't be every week, but you're not going to be casual about it. You're going to make it a priority. You're going to work to try to make it happen. I'm praying that God will use the simple truth of his word to transform you personally, to make you alive in him to quiet the lies of the enemy that speaks so incessantly through our culture, in, maybe in your mind, in your, in your family. I don't know. But I think the truth of God is the antidote to those lies. And yet we have to embrace it. We have to know it and embrace it. Next step, E. 
You know, we've been doing this four for four corners. We launched it last week. If you weren't here, just in 30 seconds, we need to raise $60,000 over 44 days to help finish phase one. And so we're asking people to give in multiples of four. In a few minutes, you're going to hear an update about what people did. And way to go, four corners, out of the gate, strong start. Couldn't be prouder of you. But if you haven't made a decision to help us with that yet, you'll hear a bit more about it. Think about checking next step E and finding out a little bit more information. You'd like to talk with someone about that. I'd be glad to schedule time with you or one of our staff will and tell you about what God's doing in our church. We're very, very excited. So here's what I'd like you to do. Consider your next step. Check the box. Put it inside. Let me pray right now. I'm going to pray for those people who are accepting Jesus. And in a few moments, when I begin praying, people are going to come all over the room and get set up for communion. This is a time where whether you've blown it this week, whether you're on your A game spiritually, whether you know a lot or you know a little, whether you've been accepted in the church or whether you still feel like an outcast, this is the time where Jesus says, come to me, come, come. Lay all that other stuff aside and I want you to feast at my table. I want you to feast at my table like you're a loved son, like you're a loved daughter. And I want you to receive from me what you need. I'm a father that gives good gifts to my kids, he says. I'm a dad that builds into you. And so in communion, we come and we take the bread, which represents his broken body. And we eat that as a reminder that, yeah, we may be broken, but he was broken so we could be made whole. And we dip it into the larger glass, which is wine, or the smaller grape glass, which is grape juice, and we remember the shed blood that he gave on the cross for the covering of all of our sins to make us fully whole and one with him. And we don't do it because we earned it, lived up to it. No one is ever worthy to take communion. So we come in humility, but we come boldly because he asks us to. Let's pray about those things right now while people are getting ready to serve us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. God, I want to thank you that your word dispels darkness. Your truth conquers lies. That you are louder, God, than the voices of this world. That greater is he who is in us than the one that works in the world. I want to thank you, Lord, for being a God who cares and comes to us and gives us not platitudes, not slogans, but truth. Truth that cuts to the very center of who we are and it lays us bare. It tells us about you, tells us about the world, tells us about ourselves. Thank you, God, for being a God of truth. Lord, over these next few weeks, we want to be a congregation that revels in your truth, that grabs hold of it, that deals with it honestly. God, I want to thank you for each person that's saying, I'm a sinner. I accept you as my forgiver and I make you the Lord of my life. Thank you, God, for those that are recommitting tonight or today to re-engage your word on a, on a more consistent and disciplined level. And God, as we take communion together as a family, I pray that whatever we need, that we would find our supply in you. I pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen.